0: Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, and blessings from your family in Stockton. Uh, I just want to open with a a funny little story. So the last time I was here on a Sunday morning, and particularly on this stage, I was invited down to lead worship um, on the very Sunday that Pastor Al announced that they were going to be going to Boston, so I don't know, five, six years ago if any of you were there, and so I was asked to come down and lead music worship and we we're on our way down, have the family, all the kids packed up in the car, we're driving down and I get a call, forget for, from whom, uh, and they said, hey, can you learn a new song and throw it in the set? I said, sure, you know, what song? I'll give it my best shot. And they're like, well, it, it's an Augustana song. And so I was thinking, I don't, and the name sounds familiar, but I'm not sure I know the band or the, the worship song or whatever. And, and I was like, okay, what, what song is it? And he's like, well... The Boston song. And I was like, oh, that's where I've heard it. Like every coffee shop in Forever 21 in the last decade in the middle of a worship set. So I'm glad they haven't asked me to do anything like that today. Uh, But equally crazy because the passages that we're going to be covering are a lot and sort of intense. Um, I have the joy and privilege to to pick it up where Pastor Britt left off last week in teaching through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 16. The title of this morning's message is, The Way Up Is Down. What a follow-up from Yucky Yeast to a way up, the way up is down. As you're turning there, Matthew 16, we're going to pick it up in verse 13. I'm going to be reading from the NIV version, but as you're turning there, I want to uh, set it up this way. Here, here in Matthew 16, there is a distinctive shift in the ministry of Jesus Christ occurring right here. Okay? Jesus is going to introduce some very, very big themes for the first time, like the ecclesia, the church. What we see right here, Jesus is introducing. Uh, his first explicit mention of his death and resurrection. Big implications from that one, right? And so on and so forth. Essentially, everything else that we're going to read on and see in the rest of the new testament is an unfolding of what jesus is introducing here the church uh, his death and resurrection glory no big deal right okay so matthew 16 starting in verse 13 when jesus came to the region of caesarea philippi he asked his disciples who do people say the son of man is they replied some say john the baptist Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Hallelujah. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen. Jesus turned. And said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what they've done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of God. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit, his words to us, and his power among us. We acknowledge with Jesus this morning that it is not flesh and blood that will reveal these things to us, but you, and by your grace. And so, Lord, we want to humbly come before you, And ask, Lord, that you would reveal your work and your truth to our hearts, God. Apart from you opening up our minds and our hearts, Lord, it will fall on deaf ears. But we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would uh, breathe life into us, Lord. That you would awaken us to the truth of Christ. And through that, Lord, that you would transform our lives. I pray right now, Lord, that you would anoint my lips to be faithful to your word, to preach and teach in a way that would bring glory to you and edify this church that I love. I pray, Lord, that you would anoint our ears and our hearts to receive. We love you, God. We give you praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the direction for this morning's message, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage in three movements to ensure that. Uh, we get through it, and I don't get sidetracked. Uh, the, the three points are this: declaring who Jesus is, discerning the way of the cross, and third, discovering true life. We'll look first at declaring who Jesus is. Now, what we come to find out is that Jesus has taken his disciples to a city called Caesarea Philippi. So, what's so special about this place? Well, Caesarea Philippi was a Roman-occupied city that sat at uh, Israel's most northern border, bordering essentially the Greco-Roman world. At one time, Caesar had given this city to Herod and then was later taken over by his son named Philip. And so as an act of honor to Caesar and to himself, he renames the city Caesarea Philippi. Give a little context to the sort of honor that's being given to Caesar through this name change and the sort of honor that would have been Given to Caesar at this time and place, let me, let me read to you an inscription that's found in what is called the Priene calendar of nine nine BCE. It says this. Listen to these words now. Since Providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the God, Augustus, was the beginning of the good news, a.k.a. the gospel for the world that came by reason of him. Caesar's not just claiming to be the king. Claims to be the very son of God himself. This was the sort of authority structure that we see present and prevalent in this culture in this time. It was based on self-promotion. Cutthroat self-promotion. So you guys remember last week, Jesus had taken his disciples and spoke to them very distinct words and and very clearly about um, warning them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In a way, he's detaching himself from the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in a very particular way. And now what we see at Israel's most northern border to the rest of the world, to the Gentile Greco-Roman world, he's detaching himself and his teachings and essentially the kingdom of God From the way of thinking of the world. From the way of thinking that sort of followed that sort of train of thought. And along with the temple dedicated to Caesar here in Caesarea Philippi. There was this big rock uh, cliff face with all sorts of temples to gods and courts to gods. For instance, temple and a court to Caesar, to Zeus, to Pan, to Nemesis, to goats, like you name it. It was, it was essentially a shopping mall of pagan worship. It was a shopping mall of idol worship. And there among the temples and these courts was an opening. Opening in the rock that was known in the ancient world as the gates to Hades, the gates to hell. It was, it was believed to be the opening of the underworld. And so Jesus brings them there. With all of that backdrop, with all of that history, with all of the false notions of these gods and all of the false notions about authority and all of these false notions about what truth is and about what life is really about. And in that very place, he asks his disciples this question, verse 13, who do people say the son of man is? Okay. Who do they say the Son of Man is? And so they begin to list. Well, some say uh, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others are saying Jeremiah. Essentially, they're saying that you're one of the prophets. Now, it's interesting that they're standing in front of these many temples, in front of these many places of worship. It's almost as if Jesus is asking the question, am I just another God to the Greeks? Or am I just another Uh, power and authority figure for the Romans? Am I I just another mouthpiece and prophet to the Jews? Essentially, he's asking, am I just another option in the world's selection? And all these options of worship, am I just another name in the hat? But then he does an interesting thing here. He takes it a step further. 13 says, what are people saying? Verse 15, but what about you? He asks, who do you say that I am? You see, the question about who Jesus is, it has to go further than rhetoric, doesn't it? It can't just remain in that realm of theoretical. This is a word to me. This this is a word. This is a question that that hit me and confronted me this week in preparation. Okay, that's what everyone else is saying about me. But what do you say about me? Who do you say that the Son of Man is? Who do you say that I am? I think it it shows that it's got to go deeper than what just other people are are saying. Yeah, sure, you can quote off something. You can quote off someone else's idea. But who is Christ? Who is this Jesus? The question's got to confront us. Not allow us to wiggle out of it. So I want you to hear that question and and almost sort of taking you by the face today and asking you, yeah, 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 that's what they're saying, but what about you? Who, Who do you say the Son of Man is? Who am I? You see, this right here may perhaps be the most important question that you ever face. Determining who Jesus is, is vital in order to follow him into what he's calling us to. You see, if we're not convinced about who Jesus is, if we're not convinced about how worthy he is, if we're not convinced about what he has accomplished on our behalf, all the rest that's to come, that the call to follow him into sacrifice and self-denial and ultimately death, that's not going to make sense. None of that's going to make sense. I believe, that, I believe that this is why this question precedes this sort of difficult call to follow him and take up our cross and follow him. The question comes first because our belief dictates our behavior. What we believe about Jesus Christ is going to have a direct correlation to if we're willing to follow him into this difficult call. This is a difficult call he's laid out for us. But it hinges on us being confident in who he is. And so he presses the question even further. A.W. Tozer put it this way. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and a man's spiritual history and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question of the church: for the church, before the church is always God himself. It's this question that Jesus is asking, who do you say that I am in every generation? This is the question we must all face and answer without hesitation, without confusion and without apology. We must answer And this not only hits us personally, but this hits us corporately. Jesus is speaking in the plural form when he asks, who do you say that I am? A church must determine over and over and over again just who this Jesus Christ is. And so Simon Peter jumps up to the plate and he declares, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. In other words, you're the Christ. You're you're the anointed one. You're not just another moral figure you're not just another lowercase g god you're not just another mouthpiece for god you are the son of the living god you're the hope of the world you're, you're the rescuer that we've been anticipating you you're the one that stands in triumph and victory and takes the throne as the rightful king you are the christ Now this statement helps us understand why Jesus in just a few verses is going to tell them not to tell anyone he's the Messiah. Isn't that kind of strange? He's the Messiah. And yet he's saying, don't tell anyone about me being the Messiah. Why? Because this would have not only been understood as a statement about who Jesus is. This would have been understood as a statement about what Caesar isn't. Caesar just got demoted. Think about an illustration. A CEO walks into his office and sees that he's been replaced. Someone else is sitting in his desk. The new plaque, name plaque is on the door. He's not thinking to himself, oh, great. I, I thought our organization always needed two CEOs. He knows he's done. Get the box and pack up the desk. This declaration that Christ is the Messiah, the, that, that he's the king means that Caesar just got demoted. Now, as you guys remember from your time in Matthew earlier on, in Matthew 2, I know it's probably been a long time since you were in Matthew 2. <laughs> but the wise men, the magi come, and they see the star that's over Bethlehem, and they come to Herod, and they say, will you show us the king? Because we've come to honor him. Think about this statement. This, this statement. They're standing before Herod and they're saying, "Uh, would you show us to the king, please? Because we've come to honor him with our greatest and best gifts. And how does Herod respond? By eventually murdering every male child under the age of two years old to make sure that he eradicates that problem. This wasn't just a bold claim about who Jesus is. This was the highest form of treason. Treason. Christ is the king. And this would have sparked a political revolution. They would have dragged him, and this would have catapulted him, essentially, to the throne. We'll come to find out shortly that Jesus wasn't interested in political revolution. And he certainly wasn't interested in self-promotion. You see, Matthew 16 is not setting in motion a beeline to the throne, Matthew 16 is now setting in motion a beeline to the cross. To the cross of Jesus Christ. This right here may already give us a clue as to what Peter was misunderstanding the moment he got rebuked by Jesus. But nonetheless, Jesus replied, verse 17, "'Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven.'" you didn't just make this up. You didn't just come up with this stuff. This doesn't come from flesh and blood. This doesn't come from your own will or from your own mind, but from my father in heaven. And so the question is, how is Peter able to make such a clear and bold declaration of who Jesus is? The answer is by the sheer grace of God. By the sheer grace of God, because it's God who opens up our eyes to see. It's God who opens up our hearts to receive the truth of who Christ is. It's even God who opens up our mouths to declare who Christ is. It's grace and grace alone. Amen, church? I'm going to need you on this one here. By the sheer grace of God. Jesus is recorded elsewhere in the gospel of John saying, the spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Your own human effort and willpower has not mustered this up. This is a divine grace and gift from God. You see, this gives us hope when it comes to our faith. It gives us hope and confidence when it comes to belief and trust in who God is. That God graces us with faith that God graciously opens our hearts and our eyes to see the beauty and the radiance of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He lets us see and gives us the ability to respond in faith. But you see, this is not only hope for our own lives. This is what gives us boldness and, and courage as we are declaring who Jesus is according to the great commission to make disciples of all the nations, to declare the the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. The hope and the confidence that we we have is that it's God that opens up eyes to see, that it's God that opens up hearts to receive, That, that it's God that gifts faith. The truth is some of us were led to Christ by great orators, great communicators, but chances are, you were you were you were led to Christ by someone persistent and faithful in your life that may never speak publicly. Maybe it was through a persistent uh, parent. Maybe it was through a fumbling friend. I love the testimonies of the friends that led people to Christ that were really not competent to share the gospel, and somehow, some way, God is mighty to save. You see, the beauty of how this works is God is designed for his church to expand and for souls to be saved by the powerful message of Jesus Christ by the means of not so powerful people like you and me. The apostle Paul would write to the church in Rome in Romans chapter one, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed to proclaim the life-giving message of the gospel because it's God who saves. To the church in Corinth, he would write this, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. It wasn't because I was a great communicator, it's because our God is great. And because the presence of the Holy Spirit is mighty in saving So Jesus goes, are you guys still with me on this one? I need you, I need you on this one. So Jesus goes on and says, I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, will not overcome it. On this declaration of who I am, of who Jesus Christ is and what he accomplishes on behalf of, Of humanity on that message, on that rock, on that steady, sure rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it. With all of its idolatry, with all of its confusion, with all of its deceit, the message of Christ will prevail, declaring who Jesus is. Secondly, we see discerning the way of the cross. What we see in the verses to follow is that as much as Peter has gotten it right when it comes to what he's declared about Jesus, he's gotten it so wrong when it comes to discerning the way that Christ would rescue. He's gotten it wrong when it comes to discerning the way that Christ would rule and reign. Look at me in verses 21 through 23. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Don't do. Okay, that one's a freebie. Don't do that. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. And so Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. The one thing that we never want Jesus to say to us, you are a stumbling block to me and you do not have in mind the concerns of God. You are not discerning the way of the kingdom, but merely human concerns. You are seeing this all wrong. In other words, you are seeing this from the perspective of your flesh. You are seeing this according to the way of humanity. You are seeing this according to the way of the world and you are not discerning this correctly. You're not seeing this right. You see, Jesus is giving his disciples a very clear and detailed description of the way that he would conquer. And here it is. Through his death and resurrection. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says that this is going to have to be a necessary death. That he must be killed. That there is no other way. That this is the way that the Messiah is going to display his saving purposes on behalf of humanity. No other way. Now for us the church, we have a very distinct vantage point because we know that this was the decisive victory. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the decisive victory, amen? where Christ took upon himself our sin and our condemnation, the penalty of our sin. At the great exchange, he took upon himself all of our filthiness and all of our unrighteousness and exchanged it for his holiness and his righteousness. And though he died, death could not hold him down. And on the third day, he rose in victory And he ascended to the right hand of the Father in glory. And he sent his powerful Holy Spirit to continue his saving purposes throughout the world until the day that he returns to make everything right again. Decisive victory. And yet as much as this is the Messiah that Peter has just declared and confessed, right now, at this moment, he's sounding nothing like the Messiah that Peter had anticipated application point it's perfectly possible to declare Christ accurately and yet be thoroughly disappointed by who he is and how he works I think there are times where we need to be confronted in that way that he's the Christ that we proclaim that he's the Christ that we sing about and yet he's not the Christ that we anticipated this is really highlighted on maybe a more corporate level later on in the book of Matthew As the gospel writer records the day, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, as Jesus is now riding in his final week before the cross. He's riding in, and the people begin to cheer. The people begin to celebrate, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David. What are they anticipating? They're anticipating Jesus beelining to the throne, to the palace, to take back the throne to to break the people free from Roman occupation and break the people free from the oppression and and to establish Israel as an independent nation. Once again, it wasn't about sacrifice. They're not cheering about the cross. They're not cheering about uh, suffering. They're cheering about the throne. They're cheering about the crown. They're cheering about glory. You see, as much as we give Peter a hard time about his little fumble here, what he's doing is he's actually just vocalizing the misconception that we all carry around from time to time. And it is this. That somehow that there's a crown without a cross. That there's glory without suffering. Or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer described it, that there's such a thing as cheap grace. See so what Jesus is doing here is he's introducing a very radical and, and important truth as he rebukes Peter. Here it is. A crossless Christianity is a satanic Christianity. Get behind me Satan. A crossless Christianity is a satanic Christianity. As one commentator pointed out that this teaches us that it's entirely possible to be Christ-centered and yet not cross-centered and so everything is skewed. One of the early church fathers says that Christ has many fans of heaven, but very few cross bearers. Entirely possible to be Christ centered and yet not cross centered. And the result is everything in our life gets skewed, it goes haywire. Matthew 16 shows us that the oldest heresy that the Christian church has ever faced, remember introduction, ecclesia, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The oldest church, I'm sorry, the oldest heresy that the Christian church has faced is the lie that there is a crown without a cross. That there's glory without suffering. But here's the hope that we have. Here's the the hope that we have in light of this, this lie is that, For the church, her head, Jesus Christ, has already overcome this lie. As you remember from Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is being tempted with three distinct temptations that are recorded for us. And the final temptation, the enemy, the, the, the Satan, the devil rather, says to Jesus, look at all the kingdoms of the world. Look at all. It's all yours. And it can be all yours with no cross It can be all yours with no pain. It can be all yours with no crucifixion and burial. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. You can have the entire world just forfeit your soul. And Jesus says, Satan, be gone. And so when that lie of the enemy comes to us and whispers in our ears that there's another way of going up other than down that there's another way to be exalted other than through humility, that there's another path to glory other than suffering, that there's a crown without a cross. We don't merely have to willpower our way through that lie. The church stands in the victory of Jesus Christ over that lie. Jesus' victory over that lie is our victory over that lie. Amen? Amen? And we stand in that decisive victory. And Satan will tempt us And that temptation will come often. Verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You see, there would have been no shred of doubt for the disciples what he was getting at when he talked about the cross. In this age, in this time, the cross was a very well-known, highly shameful symbol of death. The Roman crucifixion specifically was, was, was reserved for the worst of the worst of individuals, the worst of worst of, of criminals. And it would be a public symbol of power. We see at the cross a symbol of vulnerability, but it was also a symbol of power, not to the crucified, but to the crucifier. It would be a cautionary tale, to, to say it lightly, to anyone that would ever endeavor to follow in the footsteps of this individual, You see, we we see the cross as pain and torment to the individual being crucified, which it was, but it was also a deterrent to other people. It was saying, you better think twice about following this person because this is what will happen to you too. And this is the very thing that Jesus is calling us to do. If you were, you guys still with me right now? (laughs) If you are to follow me, if you are to be my disciple, this is where we're going. And Jesus, in that moment, takes that symbol of Roman power and flips it on its head. He says, "No, no, no I want you to follow me actually. This, 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 is, this is actually where we're going. Here's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus is explaining, if we've ever wondered what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, this is discipleship 101, you've got to die too. Not only is there no victory and salvation and glory without the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no church without a cross. There's no discipleship without a cross. In fact, the path of discipleship, the path of following Jesus Christ is none other than the road to Calvary. Jesus is summoning us to follow him to Galgotha. There's two facets of this call to to die with Christ. The first is the one that happens once and for all at salvation. Romans 6 describes that not only are we raised anew with Jesus Christ, but first we're crucified with Jesus Christ. His his death becomes our death. It enacts our death. The apostle Paul would write to the church uh, in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In other words, the old me, the old Paul, the old you, they've been crucified with Christ. The new me, identified with Jesus Christ, now lives by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith. That's what we see symbolized in baptism. Buried with Christ and raised anew with him. Once and for all, but also what Jesus is calling us into is a daily rhythm of dying to ourselves. A daily rhythm of putting to death the things in us that are earthly and fleshly, so that we may live to Christ's righteousness, so that we may live for Christ. This this this, this interplay between putting off the old and putting on the new is all throughout the New Testament. Put away the old former ways. Put off the old self and put on the new self. That is the daily responsibility of the disciple of Jesus Christ. Amen? To be reminded that the old me has been crucified. There's no power over my life. The person no longer identifies me. I'm made new in Jesus Christ. And so there's a re-crucifixion, if you will. Every single day as we die to ourselves and we follow Jesus. This may sound odd. In fact, this may sound counterintuitive. But here we're reintroduced really to the upside down nature once again of the kingdom of God. The upside down nature of the kingdom of God. Or probably better put, the right side up nature of the kingdom of God. In in Lewis Carroll's follow up to Alice in Wonderland titled Alice Through the Looking Glass... The story begins with Alice discovering that there's an entirely different world on the other side of this looking glass, on the other side of this mirror. And so she steps through this mirror into this other world, into this other universe, if you will. She finds out pretty quickly that this is sort of a strange place. In fact, so strange that if you want to go in a certain direction, moving towards that means that you don't move towards it. To go somewhere means that you don't go towards that thing. To to get somewhere important, you've got to, to move in what looks like the opposite and wrong direction. And in a sense, Jesus is inviting his disciples through the looking glass into an entirely different world, the kingdom of God, with an entirely different way of things, with an entirely different economy, Jesus says things like, if you want to live, you must die. What? If you want to find your life, you're going to have to lose it. What? If you want to be fulfilled, deny yourself. The one that humbles themselves will be exalted. So on and so forth. Essentially what Jesus is saying is that the way down is actually to try to go up and the way up is to go down. But here's the confidence that we have as we endeavor to step into what sounds extremely counterintuitive. Maybe for some of you, you're hearing this this morning and you're like, that sounds scary. That sounds threatening to my life. That sounds threatening to my existence. Here's the hope and the confidence that we have as the apostle Paul would write to the church in Philippi. Have this mind among yourselves. Discern the way of the kingdom in this way. In other words, because of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The way up is down, the way to be exalted is to be humbled. And here we see, written beautifully and poetically, that Christ forfeited the whole entire world and so much more so that we could save our soul. Christ let it go and got it all back again. So the question is for us, how do we know that we can discern this? How, how do we know that we can truly live with that mind that is ours in Jesus Christ? Better question, how do we know that Peter finally understood this? How, how do we know that Peter finally discerned the way of the cross? Well, history tells us that at the hour of honor, when, when Peter would face the ultimate call and, and lay down his life for the name of Jesus Christ and to be a martyr for the cause of the gospel that he asked his executioners a very, very strange question, a very, very strange request. And it was that he would be crucified upside down. And so he was. See, like us, his life was filled with getting it wrong so much of the time. Just the difference is, it was written in scripture about Peter, not us. And as much as he got it wrong so much of the time, when it counted most... By the sheer grace and mercy and strength of Christ, he got it right. See, we can't know for sure what went through his mind and his head at that moment, but I can only imagine, I can only imagine that these thoughts and these words of Jesus spoken so many years before began to resound in his head. And and as the blood flowed to his head and the blood escaped and rushed out of his body and his head was now pointed down and therefore probably his eyes pointed up. We have to imagine that there he discerned once and for all that the way up is down. And Peter, by the grace of God, entered entered in to glory that day for his light momentary affliction paled in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that was prepared for him. We'll look third and finally at this point, discovering true life. It's very easy to look at this passage, this portion of scripture and only see the cost associated with discipleship. For goodness sakes, there's books called The Cost of Discipleship. But you see, although it's clear and it's present, and don't get me wrong, there is a cost of following Jesus Christ. The truth is, it's not the emphasis of this passage. And for that matter, it's not the emphasis of the Christian life. The cost of what we give up is not the, the emphasis of the Christian life. The emphasis is not loss, it is gain. We give up in order to gain More. We go in faith and and let go in faith so that we may receive it back. We die to ourselves so that we may truly live alive. Hebrews 12 tells us that it wasn't the pain and it wasn't the sacrifice and it wasn't the the, the endurance of the cross that was Jesus' vision as he went to the cross. It tells us that it was the joy that was set before him. And because of the joy that was set before him, particularly the joy of fellowship with God the Father and bringing God glory through his life, he endured the cross and despised the shame. Pain was not the vision. Cost was not the the vision. Joy was the vision. See, the path downward in humility and self-denial in the name of Jesus Christ, my friend, it will never be in vain. This is not a path path of of meaninglessness. Every cost, every denial, every self-sacrifice is purposeful and meaningful and has an ultimate end. And Jesus tells his disciples, subsequently tells us in verse 25, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but... Whoever loses their life for me will find it. See, as Eugene Peterson translates this passage, he says it this way, this will be the way of finding yourself, your true self. This will be the way of discovering the you that you were created to be. This will be the way of discovering the you that you've been looking for all your life. See, the truth is we live these lives of this this perpetual path of of self-discovery, trying to figure out who we are, trying to figure out why we're here, and And we'll use all sorts of things like our work and relationship and our accomplishments and our money and our success and our privilege and our status to try to define who we are. And the interesting thing about us and the interesting thing about our culture is that we've never been more self-confident and yet at the same time, we've never been more insecure. So sure of ourselves and yet so insecure. Why? Because we haven't dared to lose it. We're hanging on. We're grasping. We're hanging on to our own self-image. We're hanging on to our our own comfort. We're hanging on to our own safety and our our own security. We're hanging on to our own will for our lives. We're hanging on to power and authority to make our decisions and to accomplish these things in our lives. And the truth is the longer that we cling to these things, the more they will escape our grasp. We've seen that picture in, in Philippians 2 that Christ is exalted after. He let it go. So what I want to do is I want to encourage us with the words of C.S. Lewis as we close. I'm going to depend heavily on the worship team today to really turn our attention and our hearts to the the person and work of Jesus Christ and how he really is worth it and that he really is good and all the things that we give up in this life pale in comparison to what we have in Jesus Christ. So C.S. Lewis said this, your real new self will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. The principle runs through all of life, from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Listen to this next line. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. Maybe you're there today. But look for Christ. And you'll find him. And with him. Everything else. Thrown in. Amen. Let's respond. Father we love you. And we're thankful for all that we have in Jesus Christ. We just want to acknowledge. Together. And be honest. This is a hard word. Everything the world's always told us. About holding on and hanging on. And. You've just flipped the script. And maybe for some it feels like you're just pulling the rug out from underneath them. Maybe for some this feels threatening or scary. Maybe for some, like Peter, this sounds very disappointing. We want to acknowledge together today in honesty that you're not always the Messiah that we anticipate, but you are always the Messiah that we need And we desire to submit our lives to you, God. We acknowledge today that flesh and blood are of no help. And that it's the Spirit that gives life. And so it's our aim and our desire to yield to the powerful work of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Would you empower us to loosen our grip and our cling to these worldly things? Would you spare the man or woman that is seeking all of the world and yet forfeiting their soul today? And I pray, Lord, in self-denial and taking up our cross and following you that we would experience the joy that Christ experienced too. We love you, God. Speak to us now. Continue to reveal your truth and grace to us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.